This is Learning Innovation, the teaching and learning podcast, also known as LittlePod. We are created by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation, located in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. In the spirit of equity, diversity and inclusion, and Nitsitapi Simstan, or real thinking, we play host to a spectrum of guests from the teaching and learning community. As we highlight and explore innovation in education, we hope to kindle warm conversations, expand perspectives, and foster lasting partnerships today, tomorrow, and beyond. The future of learning starts now. Oki, and welcome to episode number 36 of The Little Pod. Our guests today are Kamina Weasel Moccasin, Indigenous Curator at the Galt Museum and Archives here in Lethbridge, Chris Hodgson Bright, a Lethbridge College faculty member involved in the Multimedia Production Diploma and Digital Communications and Media Program, and Nelson Rabbit, an alumnus from this program. We're going to be talking about an Indigenous immersive storytelling event held last October at Fort Whoopup in recognition of the 52nd anniversary of the Battle of Belly River. During this event, several technologies were presented that offer a glimpse into the possibilities of immersive storytelling. We'll learn how these digital mediums are helping to bring Indigenous voices to the forefront and their impact within the teaching and learning community. Welcome, Kamina, Chris, and Nelson. Okay. Hello. Hi there. So this past October, students from Lethbridge College gathered with Blackfoot elders at Fort Whoopup to share stories of the Battle of Belly River. Kamina, can you describe what happened at the event? So we had about uh, 10 students, I believe, who from the college came down to the fort. Uh, we had two elders who joined us and they spent three hours sitting in the teepee and listening to some of the oral traditions and histories that the elders had about that event. Um, afterwards, we were able to sit down and share a meal. And then um, some of the people that are on Chris's team started showing the elders and the students some of the technology that they were using to bring the story to life. That sounds like it must have been a fascinating event for the students. Yeah, it was. It was a beautiful day, too, in terms of weather as well. So couldn't have asked for, for better weather that day. <laughs> oh, well, that, that always helps. That's for sure. Um, is there significance in hosting the event at Fort Whoopup? There is. Um, so for... Blackfoot people, and actually for a lot of Indigenous groups, um, learning off the land is is very, very important. And so for this day, um, not only having the event take place on, I guess, the anniversary date of the battle, but actually having it down in the river bottom, we felt was something that was very powerful um, and very important to do in that way. That's very, that's... Uh fascinating because uh, I guess it would be more meaningful and help the students connect to the story. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things with the project that I think is um, really coming to light for myself, sitting down with the elders and listening to the stories that they've shared and realizing, um, you know, of course, spirituality has always been a very important part of our culture, but realizing how much that's spiritual component is involved in this project as well. And so any little ways that we can kind of strengthen that and bring that to the forefront, I think is very important for this project. That's wonderful. 
Um, Chris, when we had you on last, you were so excited about this event. Um, how did it go in your eyes? Yeah, like Kamina said, it was it was excellent. Uh, I don't think it could have gone any better. The weather behaved. Uh, we had great turnout with students, and we also had some participation from people across the college and uh, from the city and from Reconciliation Lethbridge. So uh, I thought it went really well. And uh, there are so many highlights. Uh, it, it's hard to mention all of them, but uh, yeah, lot, lots of exciting things happened that day and it, it could have gone better. Can you talk about um, some of the kind of technologies that were showcased? Sure. So um, over the course of the day, uh, we had the elders. Uh, so Mike Brewsthead and Peter Weasel Moccasin, and the two of them spoke in the teepee and we captured this in a couple of ways. So we had traditional uh, video um, and that was recorded uh, by Spencer Nelson, one of the members of the CTLI team. Uh, then we also had about a half an hour of footage in 360 degree video. So that was really cool. And then, yeah, later on in the afternoon, it was uh, an opportunity for all the different people who have contributed to this project to, to share what they've done. So. Uh, we had some photogrammetry, we had some drone highlights uh, of flying over um, both riding on stone and uh, head smashed in buffalo jump. And then we also had uh, some actual 3D printed objects. The artifacts uh, were painted and printed out uh, as replicas of the actual artifacts that were used in the battle 152 years ago. And that uh, really helped a lot of the story come to life in, in many different ways. So that was great. Yes, I saw some of the, the 3D printed artifacts and um, some folks thought that they were the real thing when they first saw them, but um, the size kind of gave them away um, because they were smaller than what you would think that the real artifacts would be. Um, can you talk about how these artifacts were created? Yeah, so what was happening is that uh, we both Kamina and I and um, there's Tyler Stewart as well from the, the Galt and uh, I believe Kevin McLean is uh, the archivist. Uh, we all traveled to the Esplanade in Medicine Hat, but we also looked at the artifacts that we have here at the Galt Museum. And so we looked at those artifacts, we chose the best that we thought would be uh, represented in the best way. And then what happened is that uh, with each of those artifacts, uh, I was able to take about 100 photos of each artifact, and then um, they were stitched together, brought together to create one digital image, three-dimensional image that could then be manipulated and turned around so you can really explore and uh, understand how that item was used. So that was great. And then from there, um, it was taken into Sketchfab by one of the uh, alumni of, of the virtual reality and augmented reality certificate program here at the college. And so they uh, were able to fine tune it. Yeah, it was, it was really neat to see um, how all that hard work kind of came together. Wow, that's quite the process and quite the collaboration to, to make that happen. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of behind the scenes, but it was yeah, really neat how it came, came about. So, Nelson, um, how did you get involved in this project? Well, initially, I actively avoided it. <laughs> um, I saw Chris's call out for an artist, and all the info that was given at the time was Indigenous artist for a research project. At the time, I was working on a documentary, so I'm 
Well, I had about three or four contracts going on at the time, and I honestly did not want to add another one. So I thought, no. I saw this back in, I think, May, late May, early June. No, I don't want I don't want to add to my plate. I'm already quite busy. And then one day I got um, a message. It was from Chris, and he said, Nelson, someone su- submitted your name. And I was like, okay, for what? And he sent me a, he told me all about what was going on. And as he got into it, then I realized, oh, maybe this is something that I want to be involved in. I took a look at my calendar. As it happened at that time, some of my contracts were ending fairly soon. Uh, this was about early July at that time. So well over a month since I first saw his initial call out. And then he sent me over a full-on uh, presentation. He gave this whole spiel about what he wanted to do. And I'm the kind of person where if you're excited about what you're working on, I'll get excited too. Chris was definitely excited about it. And by the end, I was so excited. I was telling him, yes, we can do this and let's do it. And I think in that moment when I was being so excited, uh, we may have miscommunicated, (laughs) which I find really funny because Chris (laughs) taught me about communications in school. (laughs) It's quite funny now, but at the time, I thought I was doing flat 2D illustrations. The examples he showed me were flat 2D illustrations within a VR world. I thought, no problem. I got this. That's what I can do. I have no problem with it. We go through a couple meetings, and then it turns out, oh, I'm doing 3D. And not only am I doing 3D, I need to use a VR headset to build the 3D models. And I have to say that was really exciting. I Once I put the headset on, my basement disappeared, and... I had an unlimited canvas of possibilities laid out in front of me, and I had so much fun just learning to use the program. And then I want to say somewhere around late August, early September, I got sick, thought nothing of it. It's not a very heavy work schedule for me, so if I wasn't feeling good, I didn't need to work. Not a problem. And I think it was as the medicine built up, my tolerance to VR dropped and it got to the point where I could no longer use the headset for longer than a couple minutes. So I sat there thinking, how can I continue? We got to the point where it's like, we want not only 3D models, but 3D animations. So I started doing research into the project, into the software I was using. The VR software only builds models. And I was like, okay. How does that help us? Found out we would eventually have to transition to a different software, which I was already familiar with. And a light of hope started glowing brighter and brighter. It was um, Blender. It's a 3D modeling program. You can also do animations within it. You can texture. You can do pretty much everything 3D within Blender. And I thought, okay. Now I have my plan. I'm going to go tell Chris. Got in a meeting with Chris. Chris, I can't use the headset anymore. I get a motion sickness almost the moment I put it on. His face dropped on the Zoom meeting. 
And I told him, don't worry. I found out eventually I'm going to have to leave Gravity Sketch from the VR headset and port everything into Blender and then continue working in Blender. The only difference now is I work straight from the get-go in Blender. I no longer have to trade programs. And once I told him that we can still keep going and without any real major hiccups in our workflow, he got so excited again. And since then, we've been working fairly consistently trying to get ideas flowing. And after the event down at Fort Whoopup, it seemed like everyone just laser focused. Whereas before, we're like just doodling, kids playing in the sand. Look at what the sand can do. And then someone said, look what we can do with when you wet the sand and have these buckets. You can build a castle. So now we have a very clearly defined goal that we're reaching for. And it's been so exciting so far. Uh, so Nelson, that sounds like you arrived at a really amazing solution to quite a challenge that you had with with being sick and, and the VR. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say it was a lucky coincidence. Um, Chris had me believing everything was going to happen through the VR system. And at the time, that's what made me really excited to go go ahead through it. It turns out that once the modeling was done, we'd have to transition to a different program. And then my days of using a headset to build the whole thing would come to an end. And so once I got sick, I just, we found out, well, I found out, well, there's really no loss. I'm already familiar working with Blender. It's already something that I have some experience in. So I didn't need to spend as much time learning the system as I did with the VR system. And I felt quite lucky that even though I came to that, which is essentially a major roadblock, I'm still able to be a part of the program and I can still be of service. And I have to say, it almost feels like I'm supposed to be here. Um, I subscribe to I have no plan. The plan's there for me. I do whatever I want. Whatever comes my way comes my way. Even if I try to avoid it, like I initially said, mm-hmm. I have tried to avoid this research project, but it still came to me. And I've noticed through my input, um, I've actually enlightened my team as to certain things. Uh, for example, they decided from a storyteller's perspective, plain teepees don't seem that exciting. And I had to tell them, well, from my personal point of view, plain teepee means you're doing it right. If you wanted your teepee designed, you have to earn it or it needs to be passed down to you. So if you're seeing a plain teepee from my point of view, you're seeing someone doing their job when it comes to an outsider's storyteller. And everyone's eyes just kind of widened like, oh. So in on one hand, that solved everyone's issues. It's much easier to do a plain TP with some occasional smoke damage from the fires inside as opposed to a fully painted TP. Which I'm sure that given the story that we're trying to tell one or two may be appropriate but then at the same time 
what can we really put down? I, as an individual, don't have that answer. Uh, we'd have to talk to either Mike or Peter if we can do that. And if so, what can we do? But in, on the other hand, plain TPs, you're doing good. And they're like, great, we'll just go that way then. It's much easier on our end. And that's what we're trying to do with our limited resources is try not to overwhelm ourselves. Thank you, Nelson. You're bringing a really important perspective to the work that you do. Initially, I didn't think so. But as time went on, I found out, even with my limited experience, I'm not one of, um, well, my family was one of the ones where I'd say residential school was very effective. I come from a long line of very hardcore Catholic church-going members. So I had very limited exposure to the culture myself. So what knowledge I do have, I noticed has been quite helpful with this project. And whenever I come to a stone wall, I have to say, as Kamina, uh, she might know more than I will. If not, then Mike or Peter will. And so far it's worked out, but when it comes to working with a team, I just happen to know enough and the right things to know where everything usually stops right there within our group chat that we don't need to go outside seeking seeking outside validation of what I'm trying to prove or say because I just happen to know enough. And for that, I'm grateful. And I think the team also greatly appreciates that. They've also, um, Rick, a member of our team also said, well, you're highlighting stuff we don't know. And that's a great thing right now. And I'm just offering my point of view. So it may be a great thing, but for me, I'm just being me, just offering my input, my input and, and insight and doing what I can where I can. And do you have any favorite moments with the project so far? It would have to be when we all gathered down at Fort Whoop Up. Um, when we were li listening to Peter and Mike talk, uh, one of them said, I think it was Peter, not everyone is willing to listen the first time you talk to them. And I have to say, I was one of those. I was because, like I said, with my upbringing, I wasn't that very interested. And he said, there will come a time when you are interested in listening and you will pay attention. And when someone had said we were in that TP for three hours, I didn't believe him until I checked the time myself. I was just so engrossed with what Peter and Mike were saying that time flew by for me. And I had learned so much, even though they spoke so little about the battle itself, I still learned a lot from what knowledge they were passing on. What a fantastic experience. Kamina, can you tell us the story of the Battle of Belly River? Yeah. So um, what I found really interesting with this project, we've mentioned before that there's been three publications on this event, uh, but for the most part, it's from the settler colonial perspective. And so what I've noticed with that is that they focus on um, a very limited geographical location on the landscape, but they also focus uh, on a limited 
time period. So just the events on that day. Um, when I sit down with elders and I ask them, you know, can you share the story about this battle? It's been really interesting to hear, um, for the most part, majority of them say, well, before I talk about that, you need to know about this. And so they talk about events that have actually happened years before the battle, um, conflicts that have played out between uh, different Cree groups and Blackfoot groups. And so for me, that's been um, an interesting piece to this is realizing from the Blackfoot perspective, um, this event didn't just happen in a vacuum, right? And so they, they talk about, oh, there was these events that happened before the battle, the battle itself happened. Um, there's various stories. And with that, it's interesting as well, because there's there's a collective story um, that the tribes hold. But then there are also personal stories, um, clan stories or family stories that are really specific um, about little little events that were happening in this one larger event. And then elders usually talk about after the event and then usually bring up a couple of instances a couple of years after that. So very much um, a larger perspective, not only in terms of geography, but also in terms of time. So if we're talking about just just this one day, um, well, actually, I can't talk about starting on that one day. <laughs> um, so elders have talked about that there were some people in the Blackfoot that actually a couple of days before they had seen the Cree coming, that somebody had a dream of them coming. And so kind of had spread the word, you know, there might be something that's happening, everybody kind of be ready. And so a lot of the the warriors actually had their war horses tied up just outside their teepees. Um, so they were ready for something to happen. Likewise, on, on the Cree side, I've heard that there was um, one of the, the elders within the group had a dream that the Cree group had approached the Blackfoot, but there was a buffalo there that had steel horns and that this buffalo was just ravaging its way through this Cree group. And so the elder had said, you know, this, this wasn't a good dream. I don't think that we should continue. We should turn back. And actually a lot of the young guys in that group, um, they were actually very disrespectful to this this elder, disregarded his dream, <clears throat> disregarded his warning, and had just said, you know, we're, we're going to continue. If you want to go back, you can. And so there was a number of Crees that did end up going back, um, but still quite a large number of them that decided to continue on. And so when they did... Um, one of the reasonings behind them coming to attack was actually they had heard the Blackfoot had just undergone um, one of the, the waves of smallpox. And so from the Cree side, they had thought, okay, now that the Blackfoot are in a very vulnerable position, um, a lot of their people have been wiped out. Now is a good time to attack. So when they had come, um, I was told that one of the first camps that they had come across was actually up near Monarch. So again, that's where I talk about that larger geographical um, piece to the story as well. And so when they had attacked that camp, um, the dogs had started barking and howling. And that started 
all the camps down the river. There were different clans that were camped basically down the river from Monarch all the way down to where um, um, the kind of like the north side of West Lethbridge is now. And so they talk about just hearing these dogs howling and that howling just kind of traveling down the river system. And so that was kind of like one of the the initial skirmishes that had happened. And so one of the people from that camp, one of the Blackfoot um, young boys, rode down the river and started raising the alarm, telling everybody. And so this Cree group had thought that, you know, this one small camp of Blackfoot was all that they were going to come across and that they could just quickly wipe them out and and that'll be it. Um, But didn't realize that there were thousands and thousands of people camped down along the river. And so as that um, that initial skirmish was kind of happening, then all of a sudden you see all of these Blackfoot horses come pouring out from the coolies. And so the fighting actually started to uh, move south down the river. And right about the um, where Fort Whoopup is now, just across the river on the west side of the river is where they had started to fight. The battle came down into the river bottom and then the Crees had crossed the river to um, trying to escape. Um, at that time, they say that a lot of the, the Blackfoot warriors were just kind of standing up along the coulee and then just shooting down at them. There were a few that actually rode their horses down and had hand-to-hand combat with a few of the people that um, actually in the river bottom. But the fighting had gotten to a point where um, there were very few Cree people left. And so one of the Blackfoot elders had said, okay, that's enough. The few that are left, we're going to allow them to go back home and, and they can tell the story of this battle and make sure that it's passed down. So that's um, a shorthand story. <laughs> That's just absolutely fascinating. And having spent time in the coolies, I can, I can start to imagine, you know, where that transpired and, and, you know, what occurred. That's quite Mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. So for people who are familiar with the location, um, just hearing the story is enough, right? But there's some of the people that they don't have that connection to the landscape. And so that's where it, the work that Nelson and Chris and the rest of the team are doing is really important because then you can actually place the people in that landscape. They can hear those stories um, as they're looking around at the coolies and the rivers and, and get a fuller understanding of what was really happening that day. That's a great connection. So, you know, when you were talking about learning from place, all of this technology will allow people to to learn from place without necessarily being in the place. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Okay. Nelson, what are you looking forward to now with this project? With this project, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually see, seeing it being developed within VR. I hope I can actually experience it in VR. And I'm fairly positive by that time I'll be able to. It's been a while since I last tried VR, but I was told until everything calms down inside my body, I'll be on my meds for a while. So I don't know when that will happen. My I just put full faith in my doctor. He's helped me through a lot. So it's like, well, if you're concerned, I'm concerned. You're not worried, so I'm not worried. So I'm hoping within 
while we're still working on this again once again put on a VR set and relive well not relive but experience the story that way and that's what I'm looking forward most to um, I, up until then I'll be seeing everything on my computer screen so it's not really that exciting for me to see what I'm doing but once the rest of the team puts it in a VR environment that is what I'm I can't wait for yeah, so that will be fine. The kind of the culmination of all the work that you've been doing. Yes. Um, the other team has been working on a lot of great stuff with their shaders and their um, interactions within the VR world. And it's a little mind-blowing, even though I've been fully involved with this kind of work for a while now. Not um, professionally, but we've all watched a Marvel movie at some point in time in the last decade, right? It's almost the same feeling seeing that us working on that, that I can't believe we're seeing this. And not only that, but it's about a local story. And just knowing that I'm being a part of that makes me feel a little bit larger than life and I can't wait to see the finished product. Kamina, what about for you? Are you excited to, to put on the VR headsets and... You know, honestly, I haven't really thought about, haven't given much thought about myself taking part in, in the VR experience. Um, one of the things that I, I have been thinking and questioning throughout all of this is, um, again, I, you know, at the beginning, I talked about how important that spiritual component is. And that's one thing that I kind of keep in the back of my mind is, Yes, this VR experience can be great, but can it fully capture that spiritual connection that um, is is really strong when you're sitting one on one with an elder in that location? Um, so that's one thing that I don't know. Maybe I will have to put on a headset and find out. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a great question to have. Hmm. Yeah, and it's one that um, again, like I said, it, it's almost a like a driving question for me is making sure that, okay, as we're doing this project, I want to ensure that we are being respectful to, you know, all the spirits that are involved in this story, both human and non-human, um, as well as, you know, the ancestors that, that actually took part in this and really making sure that um, we're, we're truly honoring that history and that story. Yeah, it's more than just just a battle story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and definitely feeling um, a big responsibility to the community to, to represent them in a way that, that they feel is appropriate. So um, what's next for you with this project? Um, right now, I guess getting more funding. <laughs> We've kind of talked about this project as two phases. Um, so for, for myself, phase one has kind of been going out into the community, finding these stories, um, and hopefully finding people who trust us enough to share these stories with us. Uh, and then we've kind of talked about, okay, phase one is is getting access to these to these memories. Um, and then phase two is then, okay, so what do we do with them? Um, again, very much, how does the community want this story to be represented? Would they like it to be an exhibit that's in the museum? Do they want it to be a publication that comes out? Um, should it be like interpretive panels or even programming? So those are all things that right now it's just, okay, let, 
if we can find more funding to then fully take on phase two and kind of have, um, I guess, almost tangible items that can come out of these stories that are shared. Sounds like lots of possibilities there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's exciting. Yeah. And Chris, um, what about for you? What comes next? Yeah, so uh, just working with the team with Nelson, Rick, and uh, Daniel, uh, it's kind of neat how we have uh, uh, one of the alumni there in Toronto, once in Saskatchewan, and then Nelson's here in Lethbridge and Kamina's here in Lethbridge. So it's, it's really this Western Canada perspective working on this. But yeah, I really like what you said about the importance of the spirituality and in, ensuring that we get the story correct and that we honor uh, the elders and everybody involved in this. And that's been so nice about working with uh, Kamina throughout this as I've been checking back in time and time again. Okay, are we are we going about this the right way? How have we engaged the elders? How have we um, collected these stories? And, and how can we best represent this? So um, what's exciting, uh, once we have the VR experience kind of even in a draft mode where people are ready to experience it, uh, we'll be bringing back uh, those Indigenous uh, Career Pathway students, uh, Marcia Blackwater, she was uh, very kind as an instructor to uh, dedicate her class to to participate in the day. So they're going to come back and the timeline is around February, March. We're hoping to get all of them then to experience that uh, the story in, in virtual reality and see how they compare those experiences. And there are no wrong answers. It's It's kind of this idea of medium theory of um, whether you're sitting in a teepee and you're hearing it face-to-face -face from traditional oral storytelling being passed down uh, compared to a technology kind of driven immersive environment with virtual reality, what was your preference? Uh, how did you like that story being shared? Do you think this is a way that we can share more stories in this fashion? Uh, and I think one of the uh, really exciting things for me is, is hearing both Mike Brewstead and, and Peter Weasel Moccasin in the afternoon, once they started to see some of the technology involved, I, I think there can be a really strong partnership and I really hope it can continue. Again, if that trust can remain uh, with us telling the stories in the right fashion, that uh, they're very excited to narrate uh, additional stories that, that they'd love to share. And so uh, I'm very excited for uh, what comes out of this. And again, always checking back to make sure that have we got it right? And so once everybody experiences it around the February, March kind of timeframe, there's a period of time because it's a year long applied research project where there can be some refinement to adjust and make sure it's something that we're comfortable in having the public uh, check out and explore. Um, so then hopefully um, maybe in the fall of uh, 2023 that it can be part of that exhibit that uh, Kamina was speaking about. So right now we are still engaging with members of the community. And one of the things that I guess was really important for me with this project is that um, I was really, I'm doing my best to open it up to the communities as a whole and that I'm not wanting to just um, restrict myself or restrict this project to just a few kind of handpicked elders from the community. And so I've been really trying to advertise it through the radio, um, through print materials. And um, it's very much, in my opinion, in my view, for this project to be truly successful, like everything needs it to be, it needs to be a communal effort. And so um, one of the things that I've kind of been trying to get um, 
or voicing to people in the community is that, yes, our elders hold these stories, but really I'm looking to the younger generations to connect me with those elders. Because a lot of times we'll have elders that say, oh, yeah, I have a story. But if you tell them, oh, contact so-and-so, they're not going to do that because that's not the cultural protocol that we follow. And so I need the younger people in the community to be aware of this project, to go to their elders and, you know, the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs and their families, ask them if they have stories. And if they do, I need the younger communities, the younger um, people in the community to reach out to me and let me know how to get a hold of them so that I can then come to them with tobacco, with an honorarium and approach them in the culturally appropriate way. So I'm very much kind of, um, like I said, needing a, a communal effort and trying to get people to understand that's kind of the connection or how I need to be connected to elders to make sure it's done appropriately. How has that been working for you so far with reaching out to to younger people to connect with the elders? Um, initially, when I had started, I felt like it was really slow coming out of the gate. Um, but now that I think after a couple of months of people like, oh, yeah, I kind of heard this on the radio or I I, I heard you mention this. What is it? Um, over the past couple of weeks, I've gotten more and more people saying, oh, my grandfather knows a really good story. Can I have your contact and I'll have him get a hold of you? So I feel like now we're starting to get traction and we're starting to kind of get more um, more involvement from the community in that way, which is really great and what I was hoping for from the get-go. Oh, that's wonderful. And it sounds like that will that will enrich the project and, and enrich the whole story even more. Mm-hmm, very much so. Because like I said, there's that collective story, but each clan has a story. Um, each family has their own story. <clears throat> um, my father shared a story that actually um, involves one of my great-great-grandmothers in to do with this battle. Um, I had talked with some people from Bigani who had said there is actually a sacred society that came out from this battle. Um, and so those are some of the interesting things that, you know, they're not mentioned in those original publications. And those are the things that I personally find are are so enriching about this story and that we don't want to just confine it to this one day, but looking at what are the, the broader implications or, um, yeah, kind of like the, the broader um, outcomes in the community that came from this one event. I like how you've talked about it not being just about this one day, that there's many layers to it. It's a very complex mm-hmm. um situation and complex story. Yeah. And uh, another interesting thing that's come from this is people saying, oh, um, this relative, they have a Blackfoot name that actually came from this battle. And so that's another interesting piece that I've been thinking about. Okay, if we do come out with a publication, I think that would be a really interesting piece is just kind of laying out some of the people. This is their Blackfoot name. This is what it means. This is how it relates to that battle. And having a whole section on that, I think would be really interesting. That's really fascinating. Thank you. I think with what Kamina said, it really highlights like how a lot of Western storytelling is romanticized, which is also a huge problem. Um, with prior to her speaking in the last five minutes, I just learned quite a bit about this battle. And like she said, you wouldn't hear that outside of our stories. I didn't know anyone. All the stories I heard, 
even though it was by quite a few different people, I didn't hear what she just said just now. And I think that also brings a quite a bit of importance to what we're doing, that we're not telling a romanticized version. We're telling it as we were told it by those who were in it. And that's one of the things that makes me think, how much more can we do? There's not just this story. How many other stories do we have that we can share in this same medium? And I would like to, if possible, work on more like it in this exact same way. Mm-hmm. Yes, it sounds like you might be just scratching the surface of the possibilities that are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to learn more. Like I said, I wasn't that very involved or knowledgeable about my culture, but now I believe I'm at the right age where I'm more than willing to sit down and learn, and in this case, also remember. And I want to learn more because everything's just so exciting. And it's not just one perspective. It's not like once upon a time. It's, well, my grandfather told me. And that hits differently. And I want to learn, I want to learn more of those stories. That's really exciting that you can, you've got both the aspect of learning about the stories and the culture and then all of the technologies that you're using along with it. That must, that must be quite exciting to, to have both. Oh, it is. Um, it's, I have bouts of inspiration and excitement where like, I'm able to do this. How cool would it be to share a story like it? in this way. Everyone traditionally just sits around. The elder tells a story. If you're not paying attention, you're not going to find out what happened or you're not going to realize why this piece of information was important. But if we are able to tell that same story and you don't need to sit around with the elder and you get all the important bits, I feel like that would be so much more enriching in people's lives. Um, Not many people have very strong sense of attention, attention, their attention spans. That's what I'm trying to say. Not many people have it. Uh, Social media has absolutely wrecked mine in my case. Um, But then again, sitting through a couple of my wife's lectures, I think I might also be ADHD. So um, that's another subject. Um, But if we can give you a 10 minute story that covers all those important facets to the story and you don't need to approach anyone to hear it i think that would help so many more people Um, not everyone has time to seek out the individual who has the story Um, as kamina said we're trying to find more well she's trying to find more the only person i could think of i offered a name up right away mike bruce said i didn't know peter weasel also knew This has been quite the learning experience for me. And again, every time I learn something new, I'm like, well, how else can I tell this story? And because I'm learning more and more about how to work with 3D and VR, as well as my traditional 2D and photography, I'm like, I have so many ways I can tell this story. What other stories are out there? That's really neat. I'll look forward to following your career and and, uh, hearing about the things that you create. That sounds uh, really neat. Um, Chris, did you, was there anything you'd like to add? No, I don't think so. Uh, It's just, it was a really great episode. So thanks for 
allowing me to be part of it. This episode featured Donna McLaughlin as host, and Camino Weasel Moccasin, Chris Hodgson Bright, and Nelson Rabbit as guests. Jordana Gagnon was our producer. Ryan Robinson was our sound technician and editor. Thank you also to Daryl Benebeck, Joel Godry, Kelsey Jansen, and Jamin Heller for their ongoing support and expertise. Our podcast is funded by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning, and Innovation and recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. For more information and inspiration, check out learninginnovation.ca. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and follow us on your chosen platform. Thanks for listening and take care.